0: Okay, picture this. You turn on CNN. Paul Ryan is walking up to a podium in front of hundreds of cameras and hundreds of reporters. He looks at you, he looks at America, and says, Every single member of Congress is now up for re-election in one month. All 435 members are going to be voted on. If you think that's wild, that's what's going on in the UK right now. My name's Aaron Bennett. My name's Christian Mesa. And welcome. Welcome to fly
1: on the wall.
2: We are going to come at you from the general election in the united kingdom how crazy is that we're going across the pond
0: well we're not exactly going across the pond <laughs> we're in a dorm room
2: at george washington university for the summer
0: yeah so we're going to hand off this podcast this week to both justice and cc who are also hoyas who are going to take it away uh but aaron and i thought we would outline for you exactly what this podcast is going to be uh, because it's going to be very different from what we normally do uh here on this show uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about, um, what's going on in Britain, why it matters, uh, why it's so freaking different from what's going on in the United States. Um, and then we're going to get into, you know, campaign politics, uh, which is really what we like to do on this episode, no matter what country we're in.
2: Yeah, this is uh, our second fly on the trail where we explain, you know, the in and outs of how do you get into a position to govern? because, uh, you know, we like talking about, you know, to how politics actually works in DC but you know you got to get there first so uh, this is just another great example of how this stuff sort of works uh, but in a different country and and this is an area of interest that Justin and Christian share so I'm going to take a back seat and let them do some of this comparative uh, politics sort of stuff uh, but we hope you enjoy
3: and national.
2: Hey
4: guys, we're getting up at the next step. Maybe. Welcome to Fly on the Wall. I am Justice Bennett, your guest host filling in for Aaron and Christian from across the pond in London. In this episode, we will be talking about the British snap election. We're starting with British Politics 101 and giving you insight into our conversations with campaign strategists, professors, consultants, and a bunch of other interesting stuff. At least for political junkies like us anyway. But before we dive into it, I think it's best to give you a little sense of the city, culture the environment of where we are and what it's like to walk down this 2000 year old city it's a bustling city wrestling with the pulling forces of a country guided by tradition but in the middle of a transformation demonstrated by the intermingling of 8.3 million people among cranes erecting more and more buildings brexit may be even more ominous than the clouds but i guess we'll get into it and leave you with that to judge
5: I'm Justin, and I'm here with Christian, and we're going to give you a bit more on the context of this snap election in particular.
0: Yeah, consider this uh, British Politics 101 by people who use a lot of Wikipedia.
5: (laughs) So as you know, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May has called this snap election, which means every single one of the members of Parliament is up for election um, in just about six weeks from when she announced it, which, as you all know, is this Thursday. Uh, So we want to get a bit more behind why she ended up doing that. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of speculation. There's there's this reason, that reason. But the biggest thing really is, obviously, the thing that's been dominating British politics since last summer, and that is Brexit, of course. So right now, the UK is in a position where they are negotiating the terms of what their Brexit will actually look like from the EU.
0: Yeah, essentially, Theresa May was not elected. Um, you know, she was not the prime minister coming out of 2015. That was David Cameron. And she needs the leverage and she needs the mandate that uh, she can garner uh, from this election to basically go to the negotiating table and say, this is what Britain wants. Uh, And so that's essentially why she's having this election. Uh, But to understand that and understand what we're going to be doing with this podcast, we need to explain a little bit about British politics and kind of get behind the scenes of like their system, I guess, and understanding what they do there and how it's so different from the United States, because this is just fascinating.
5: Yeah, that's a good point, because structurally it looks really similar. You know, they have a bicameral system, they have a, a lower house and an upper house, their house of commons and house of lords, but the way they function, and the really, I think a lot of it has to do with the tradition that uh, parliament is steeped in in Britain, and obviously their history of a monarchy, uh, and really just how politics has evolved in the US, um, how much of a business it's become doesn't necessarily seem to be the same way that it's developed in the UK.
0: Yeah, so essentially they have two houses. Uh, they have a House of Lords and a House of Commons, but their House of Lords doesn't matter. Uh, their House of Lords is essentially a rubber stamp. That would be like our Senate, um, but their Senate, you know, quote unquote, doesn't do anything really. Um, their House of L- uh, Their House of Commons is the one where actually has all the power. Uh, so their House of Commons has, you know, like over 650 seats um, in which uh, people are elected Uh, based off of districts or constituencies, as they're called there. Um, And that's where you see the government, and that's where you see the power. Uh, So they have all of these districts, um, and you essentially vote for a person, but in a lot of ways you're voting for a party as well, because that party is going to get the um, control, and the party with the most control in the House of Commons elects their prime minister, which is essentially our version of a president, but it's really not that.
5: No, it's really not because the prime minister has different sorts of powers. Again, this has to do with the whole monarchy thing because technically the queen is the head of state. Mm-hmm. Is, it's it's the, her majesty's parliament, her majesty's government, um, but the prime minister is, is essentially functions as the head of state. Uh, and that individual is also the person who rules over the parliament. Um, they are elected from parliament um, and usually don't necessarily have the power to call a snap election like Theresa May did um, normally, there is a set schedule um, of votes. It's supposed to be every five years unless, of course, two thirds of them can vote for a snap election, which is what just happened with Theresa May.
0: Right. And snap elections actually aren't too, too uncommon in British politics. This isn't something that um, while it was surprising to people who follow British politics, um, it's not something like incredibly out of the norm. Um, but to get back at Justin's point, so essentially the prime minister then elects um, their cabinet. Um, of ministers in the House of Commons. So instead of uh, you know President Trump building his cabinet of you know who leads you know the Department of uh, Labor or Transportation, um, they have these things, but they're actually members of Parliament or Congress, as we would have. Uh, here's Mark Darcy to explain that a little bit more. Uh, Mark is from the BBC and he can describe to you you know how British politics really works and why it's a little different than our Congress.
6: For I mean the extent to which the British Parliament. Is controlled by the British government is something that the surprise people used to reporting in the US Congress. Uh, you know, it, whereas Congress is a completely separate institution. The British government draws its majority from the floor of the House of Commons and tries to control matters pretty tightly. But there have just been quite mild sounding changes, like giving MPs the ability to control a bit of debating time themselves so that they can bring causes that they're interested in to be debated on the floor of the Commons and get an answer from a minister. Just minor things like that which sound quite trivial have made an enormous difference to the way the place works. You've also got a very radical speaker in place at the moment who's allowing much more extensive and immediate questioning of ministers and that makes an enormous difference as well. So, I, there's a lot
0: back. So, what I think is really fascinating about British politics is that their head of government, their prime minister, isn't elected by the entire country. Their prime minister is elected by just a singular district and then is elected by um, that party. So, in a lot of ways, uh, your party affiliation matters a lot more uh, in, uh, in British politics than it does in the United States.
5: Yeah, that's a good point because over here we think of as you know our political parties are becoming too strong they're having too much of an influence in elections Um, but in reality over there in britain the parties are almost more powerful but in a less obvious way they're much more institutionalized Um, they function in ways that are basically legally binding whereas here in the united states there's no constitutional you know jurisdiction over which political parties exist and how they function in politics
0: So we also talked to Sam Jeffers, uh, one of the co-founders of an organization called Who Targets Me, which tracks political uh, Facebook ads during the general election of 2017. I mean,
3: smaller parties do struggle. You know, we historically have essentially a two-party system. Now that kind of broke down over the last couple of elections, Mm -hmm. but seems to be back almost stronger than ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think the two parties, Labor and Tories, are now polling at nearly 80% of the total vote, which is historically high. you know, UKIP has disappeared and UKIP were kind of vying for third party status with the Lib Dems. Um, You know, they're down in the like low single figures now. Uh, Lib Dems seem not to have been able to capitalize on Brexit, which was their kind of issue. And they're in the low single figures as well. Uh, Greens have always been in the low single figures. So there's the Scottish Nationalists in Scotland who have like you know, who have almost 50% of the vote baked in because they believe in independence, and 50% of people believe in independence. And once you have 50% baked in, you're going to win all the seats, like just the way the system works. So, um, you know, so they'll take 50 seats um, off, you know, nationally, like a few percent of the vote or something like that. But, you know, they don't, they don't poll nationally because they don't, they don't stand nationally.
0: Yeah. So because of their system, essentially parties are incredibly powerful. And so parties nominate who ends up actually on the ballot instead of a typical primary system that we go through in the United States where you know a bunch of different uh, Democrats may battle it out for the Democratic nomination, the party just decides who goes on the ballot for MPs in each constituency, um, which is an incredibly powerful tool. So if you're not a part of a, you know, a big party, you're not getting elected into parliament, and it's very, very rare that that actually happens. Uh,
5: so as you can see, it's a lot different. It's more or less a functional two-party system, but there's a lot of other you know, factors at work um, in what is commonly referred to as coalition politics, and we have Mark Darcy of the BBC back on to tell you more about exactly what coalition politics looks
6: like. If, if it's the cons- I mean, it all depends on the mathematics, first of all. You've got several potential players um, out there. The biggest potential coalition partner for any minority government would be the Scottish Nationalists who will not enter a formal coalition. They've made that absolutely clear. And actually it would probably be pretty toxic for their potential partner to do so. Inconceivable to me that they would do a deal with the Conservatives, but also very hard for Labour to do a deal with yeah. them as well. Um, what, what's known in uh, British political jargon as a confidence and supply arrangement is I think more likely than an outright power-sharing coalition. And there are two reasons for that. One is the horrible example of what happened to the Liberal Democrats when they did a coalition deal with the Conservatives in 2010. They governed for five years, and they went from 50 some, 54 seats, 52 seats, I can't quite remember the figures, to eight. They were absolutely slaughtered. The uh, Lib Dems were? Yes. We're meeting with Nick Clegg, actually. Yeah, well, no, I mean, he's a very interesting and very smart guy, Nick Clegg. Um, well worth talking to, obviously. Um, but... Uh, that is, is, is kind of uh, you know, a, a bit of an alarming warning to any potential coalition partner about the potential consequences of any deal, however fast or otherwise it might be. Um, confidence and supply deals basically mean that you're not signing up to every dot and comma of the governing party's uh, legislative proposals confidence means you will support it in a vote of confidence so in other words if the other other side tries to throw them out you'll support them to stay in and supply is ancient parliamentary jargon for tax so you will support their financial program now there may be a certain amount of negotiation around the contents of that i mean there's bound to be you don't do it for nothing Uh, i mean the labor line is always we will the minority parties to vote against are obviously righteous and sensible proposals <laughs> <laughs> um, which yeah sure right and no one's <laughs> going to talk to anyone else we believe you yeah. uh, of course they are um, if that happens there will be discussions they may be Quiet discussions, they may be, we're going to do this, this, and this. Can we campaign your support for on a competences by basis? But there will be some level of contact somewhere along the line, however unofficial and deniable it is. Mm-hmm. That's just how the, the wafer crumbles. Um, if it's the Conservatives, you know, uh, sort of a quarter of an inch short of the finishing line, I imagine that they could cobble up enough support between, the, with the, particularly the Northern Ireland Democratic Unionist Party, which will have eight or nine MPs which will take them over the line. Um, and there are there are other people they could potentially do a deal with. I can't see the Liberal Democrats engaging in another coalition with the Conservatives uh, quite yet. Uh, so, but on the other hand, if you take things on a sort of vote by vote basis, which is a rather unstable way to govern, you can probably muddle by for a while.
0: So, thank them thanks to Mark for really explaining to us uh, coalition politics and how we you know we really get into building different sides and getting different sides to talk to each other. Uh, So now we're going to get into a section Justin and I like to call the really weird stuff, uh, which is essentially just uh, the things that we found in our research uh, and the big difference between British politics and the U.S. politics. And uh, They might be really big things, but they might be really small things. But they're just things that really made us scratch our heads and wonder, what?
5: Yeah, one of the big things is big money, uh, as in how much money gets pumped into U.S. politics every election cycle. Just for a bit of reference here, in the Georgia 6 election with John Ossoff right now, that seat has been the most expensive uh, race in history. It has over $30 million pumped into that race, and we're not even at the end yet. Uh, And just to give you some comparison, the entire UK Parliament um, spent about $48 million uh, in their last election in 2015.
0: 650 plus seats, guys, Yeah, versus one seat.
5: One seat in Congress.
0: Actually absurd um another thing that we highlighted a little bit is just the quick turnaround between this you know this election happened in like a month which is crazy like official campaigning started may 3rd could you imagine one of our seats happening in one month of election time i feel like this georgia six has been going on for years now yeah really though
3: well so it's very different this time because the election was called on really short notice normally at least in my lifetime elections have sort of been vaguely predictable. You know, people trail them from quite a long way out. Oh, I think we'll probably have one in May next year. And that gives you sort of time to set everything up and, and uh, organize yourselves. It also gives you time to spend a lot of money in a way that... So so in our, what are called like in the actual campaign period, there are very strict spending controls, but often before the camp period, campaign period, you can kind of hire more people and buy things in and, um, and do more of your kind of set up work. So in a way, this time has been probably more challenging, because they haven't had that time. From the moment she called the election, that was about a week before Parliament was dissolved, and that was, that's basically the period where your spending is very narrowly controlled. Like, so in a, if I wanna win a constituency here, a single seat, I can spend like 14,000 pounds or something, or it's like 8,000 pounds plus five pence per elector or something, whereas you, know, you take a House seat and you're gonna spend $3 million trying to win that seat, or you're gonna win $20 million to win a Senate seat, billion dollars to win a presidential pretty much these days. So like the difference is ridiculous. And therefore the number of professional staff you can have and the number of the amount of analysis you can do and all the rest of it is nil. So basically, it's lots of happy amateurs putting in whatever time they can um, and you really see it, you know, so all the events are stuff you know, all the all the door knocking is totally evening stuff. There's no professional organizers, very few professional organizers on the ground. There's, you know, the media operations are really thin. <laughs> The amount of like, you know, I'm doing projects about Facebook advertising, you know, again, it's not, it's not super kind of advanced compared to some of the stuff you see in the U.S. There is just, is isn't the money to buy all the, the talent or resources, anything you'd need. So yeah, it, it makes for quite different um, uh, campaigns really, certainly compared to the
7: U.S. How old are these laws that govern the elections?
3: I have no idea. Quite old.
7: Okay.
3: Yeah. So this, I is, mean, this
7: isn't something new because like, yeah, this
0: is... It's something that gets talked about quite a bit in America, you know, how much money it. is being spent on Yeah, we're, I mean, like,
3: spending limits have been around forever, really, and things like, so I read the other day, and I hadn't really answered this before, but apparently, but until 1950, there was a kind of agreement between the TV companies, or, or agreement that you wouldn't campaign on TV at all, like campaigning was a totally like local... ads? Well, the television ads are illegal here anyway, you can't do TV ads. Okay. Okay, sorry. No no TV ads here at all. So you can buy, again, but like 14 grand isn't going to buy you a TV ad in the first place, you know, so, um, you know, not even going to buy you to make a TV ad. Um, So, uh, yeah, no TV ads. So what we have are things called party political broadcasts. So each party, depending on the number of seats they won at the last election, gets a certain number of these five minute slots before the news. Um, each night, and it rotates. So maybe you'll get three during an election campaign. If I'm the Conservative, I'll get three of these, and it'll be a kind of five-minute advertorial about like an strong and stable, exactly. And they're terrible, and no one watches them. Um, <laughs> but you know, they cut them into Facebook ads, and they play them on YouTube, and they do this, that, and the other with them. But yeah, no TV ads. Mm-hmm. A little bit of paid print stuff. So um, you can buy like newspaper wraparounds and things like this. Um, you can buy Facebook ads you know, digital ads in general, um, and do a lot of direct mail. And so that tends to be what people
1: uh, do. Uh,
0: Another fascinating turnout that may or may not be connected to uh, the last thing we just talked about is turnout. Uh, You know, routinely, uh, British politics pulls 70 to 80% of their people to turn out to vote. Uh, In the United States, we're lucky if that number hits 60. Uh, You know, in typical elections, you're hovering around the 50s. And those are for, you know, big general elections, you don't even want to see the numbers for midterm elections. It's
5: disappointingly low.
0: So we also talked to Tom Tugendhat's campaign manager, Matt Bowden.
8: Thank you all for coming to the center of the universe, which is the town of Tunbridge, uh, here here in Kent. Um, The British political system, as you probably know, is quite different from almost anything else um, across the world. It's and of course, tomorrow, everyone, every citizen in Britain who's, on, who's registered to vote will be voting to determine who they want their government to be. And in order to do so, the country is broken down into 650 areas. No elect 650 representatives, your MP. Okay? And Tom is, of course, hoping to be the MP for this part of the world again on, well, we'll find out on Friday morning, Thursday night. Okay, So, of course, the ideas, as you've just heard about from Tom, are, they're the policies that, are, that, that we want to get implemented so they're the policies that we're all trying for but of course in order to encourage people to, to vote for because we want everyone to vote Conservative obviously we need to ensure that we know who our supporters are and who's going to turn out and trust us to make that decision tomorrow so as a result parties ask people like me and pull us out of the woodwork at selection time to uh, run local campaigns and in six, all 650 seats there is a person like me whose job it is to run the campaign and to get the Conservative candidates re-elected. Now, I'm quite lucky in the sense that I did exactly this for Tom two years ago. And as he was saying, he was selected at that meeting uh, three years ago as a candidate, and then he made the somewhat foolish decision to employ me after that to look after his 2015 campaign. So I did, and then for the last two years I've been working in his private office, which, unlike... Um, a lot of MPs is actually based in Tunbridge and not in Westminster mm. so it's literally just down the road from here and um, and for the last two years I've been working on making him the best MP possible for this part of the world and then seven weeks ago a bombshell hit and Theresa May stood outside down the street and said we're going to have a general election and all of a sudden I said to my mum and my girlfriend you might not see me for seven weeks <laughs> um, so um, uh, so I thought I'd speak a bit about the mechanics of the campaign because it's quite different here, yeah. um, actually. And um, what we've got is we have an electorate, as we call it, the number of people who, have, who will get a ballot paper with Tom on, of 76,000. Okay. And that stretches from the town of Tunbridge, which we're in at the moment. It stretches west to a town called Edenbridge, which Tom was mentioning about, including all the villages inside it. And it goes north to the town of Westmoreland and all the villages there. So you've got three, three towns, you've got 30 parishes. Um, little villages. In effect, you've got a whole load of hamlets there. Uh, in total, there's 66 places in which you can vote. For Tom, in this part of the world, um, some of which are much larger than others. In fact, the castle there is one of the 66 places oh, no. where, you, where you can vote. And some people are very lucky; they get to vote yeah. in the castle. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, um, yeah. Um, not exactly. I, I guess you don't have that uh, that's in America. So, in order to achieve this, what we what we've what we've done is. Um, we want to make Tom as high-profile as possible, as visible as possible, and not just that people know him, but people think he's done a good job over the last couple of years. So it's very much having—it's very much like doing two years of work, and then you're judged on your one exam at the end of it. That's very much—that's very much it for us. Um, and to do that, there's a whole variety of things we do. We obviously have sort of an online campaign. We keep stuff going. We update Tom's website regularly. We get lots of people writing in, going, "What's Tom's view on name any issue." Fox hunting, street lights, um, what's allotments? Why aren't there any allotments in Waterinbury? Was one of the questions. Waterinbury is a very small village here. The answer is I don't know. No one's ever asked for any allotments in Waterinbury. But if they want, they want, and they will only vote for Tom unless you sort that problem out for them, which is a bit tricky to answer, but we have to deal with this anyway. But in addition to that, we have a massive logistical um, operation as well, and that's to get leaflets through the door, that's to knock on doors to find out what people are thinking, because that informs what some campaign's on. And as Tom said, we've been going at this for two years, really, and of course it's been magnified for the last seven weeks, knowing that there's going to be an election now. And, um, and we've, been, um, we've been identifying the issues and we've been responding to them as the MP, and now the idea, what we've been saying, is this is what I've done, this is what I've achieved for the community, this is what I want to do, and why you should re-elect me again. And we've, been, we've put out over the last... Um, uh, four weeks in particular, we've had half a million points of contact with those 76,000 electors there. And that's through a combination of leaflets, through door, that's through a combination, That's through doors being knocked on. And some people may have been telephoned as well um, in some areas. Um, and, um, and to do all of this, we've had to build up a team of volunteers. Okay? There is a, this is all done through us going, going out to people and going, you know what, you want Tom to be your MP again? Would you like to help? If so, this is how you can help. Okay. So in total, I reckon we've had about 275 people volunteer their time to help with Tom's campaign. And my point of view is to be the spider at the centre of that, centre of that web and to ensure that logistically everything's done. So for example, tomorrow on the day of poll, we'll have 8,500 leaflets going out in the morning um, on uh This today and yesterday, we've got another um, leaflet going out to another few thousand people as well. We've been knocking on doors every single day for a number of weeks now, asking people for their support. And when we knock on the doors, we're not actually having a discussion about policy, as interesting as that is. What we're actually doing is we're identifying Tom's supporters. So, one of the questions so that we are, every single person's doors we knocked on is, can Tom rely on your support on Thursday or next week or in a month's time? And the whole purpose of that is we then record it, it goes on a massive database, and we know that at this stage of the campaign with one day to go, we focus exclusively on those people who said they will support Tom on, on Thursday. Um, the reason for that is to what we call control turnout. So, of course, not everyone votes, it's not like Australia here. Everyone can, every, people can opt out of voting if they want What we encu- try and encourage people to do in that case is ensure that it's the Conservatives and the supporters of Tom who turn out to vote. Okay. So there's no point in suggesting to Mr Smith who might want to come and help Tom that we go and give him a bunch of doors of Labour voters to knock on because that's not actually going to do the cause which he's volunteered to help any good at all. What we'll do is we'll say these are doors of people who have pledged their support to Tom over the last couple of weeks. These are the issues they might be concerned about. Which they which they raise, um, would you like to go and speak to Mr. Smith and encourage him to vote tomorrow? That's that's one of the conversations I've had this morning um, with one of the volunteers. So that's really what we do, and it's very very much grassroots up. The great thing about politics in the UK is that this is bottom up, and this is not top down at all. And it's about it's these 650 communities go out and vote and elect one MP, and then they all vote and they all get a seat, and then you see the numbers from there. And, um, and that really is um, that really is the way it goes in the US
6: elections tend to be very or campaigning specifically mm. tends to be very
1: personality driven yeah. so there's so much devoted to making sure a candidate is relatable enough nice yeah. enough etc etc and but the sense we've gotten here is that it has a lot more to do with voter sentiment regarding a specific party platform or the manifestos you have so how would you say that affects how you campaign it
8: affects fix- massively how we campaign. So, for example, four weeks ago, we were going out knocking on doors and nobody was mentioning social care at all. And you might have, if you've been following the log of this election, Theresa May, a couple of weeks ago, announced a policy on social care, basically how you, how you pay for, um, for your care as you get old, which was, frankly, incredibly unpopular. And as soon as that was announced, then we start knocking on doors again and everyone's going, you know what, I don't like the fact that she's going to take all this money away from me. That was the impression that was given so what we, we have to respond accordingly to that. Security wasn't really an issue at the start of the election, but based on what happened in Manchester and what happened in London at the weekend, it's become an issue again, how to make our, how to make our country safer. Okay. And in some instances, we had to totally rewrite leaflets as a consequence of it. Um, in some instances, we have, to, so we have to go over what we've already done to respond to that. So it's fine going, OK, four weeks ago, this community was very... Mm, very concerned about this but that's totally shifted and in this election in particular we've noticed a change on an hour by hour basis on what the issue on the issues that are being brought up on the doorstep so it creates a problem for us the way we look at elections is imagine a pint of beer or something um and um, and we think the national stuff is sort of eighty percent controlled by what happens nationally what goes through we can't control what Theresa May says on TV, what the manifesto really, what the manifesto is going to control. Tom can f- feed into that, but again, that's just advice, okay? Um, but there's that small local bit at the top which we can control, and that's basically thinking that yes, the Conservative Party might have fallen in the polls over the last month, but we're hoping that's balanced by people going to vote for Tom because they think he's a good local MP or has been, and that's the balance we're trying to strike. So yes, a lot of it is controlled nationally, but there's that little bit at the top which we. T- hope will edges us over the line, um, in, particularly in some Martian seats that we that we got to try and control. So the short answer to your question is there's a lot you don't have any control over, really, and you have to take a take a balance of that all the time. Really? Yes? Um, kind of getting
3: back to the idea of the division between yeah. the local and national, this is something that's kind of confused me a lot, mm. and helped can yeah. understand it better. The division between national and local responsibility, you know, responsibilities, yeah. for things I mean, you mentioned allotments and yeah. street lighting type things. Yeah. I almost would think that would be, within, I, for my, yeah. it almost seems like it'd be a local
8: council kind of It council. is a local council matter, and a lot of, and a lot, of, and actually, MPs themselves have very little power. They're not commanders over the community. They don't have a pot of money in which they can allocate to communities. They are merely representatives of the town of Tunbridge, um, in Westminster. Now your councillors have an awful lot more power, particularly county councillors, over those particular issues. County councillors, for example, have £20,000 a year to spend on these local sort of, sort of solutions to fill in the potholes. Tom has no money at all. Absolutely nothing. Um, and he's got absolutely no power to arbitrarily decide something apart from to influence national policy. But because of, and I think this is a historical thing about British politics... Because the MP, and this is going back to the discussion about sort of why areas are so important, um, because the MP is seen as very much the the figurehead of the community and somebody who's got a very high profile within the community, people naturally write to their MP, get in touch with their MP. And a lot of what we do is going, thank you very much, you make a very interesting point, but this is an issue for the local council, and here's the person at the local council you need to speak to and, it would be, and they're, they're the person who, can, who will be able to do this thing. Where MPs have a, a, a huge role, though, is in terms of influence. Because as soon as the MP comes out against something um, very local, um, then um, all of a sudden it creates headlines and it creates a problem for local councils. House building is a classic problem here in Britain. So this part of the world is a huge demand for housing. Okay. But naturally, the people who are living there don't want to see the fields at the back of their house built on because they quite like looking having this lovely view of the countryside rather than of 200 homes that might be put there. Now, that's something that's all down to the council. The MP has absolutely no say over it at all, whatsoever. Some MPs, though, take the view that they should come out and campaign against this housing strategy, and uh, um, because they think it would be inappropriate. Some MPs, and Tom's in this latter camp, say, no, this is a matter for the local council, I'm not going to take a view, but I will make clear your views as a resident here to the local council there. So each MP can play differently. Each MP can do what they think is best for the community, ultimately, um, and, and adapt how they respond to those sort of queries as they wish. There's no guidebook on how to be an MP. It's literally, you're elected, there you go, you are the MP now. Um, and so everyone is balancing those precise problems that you identify on a daily basis.
0: Um, another really interesting thing that, uh, we saw is that despite having over 650 members of parliament, they only have 400 actual seats in their house of commons. So like a couple hundred people just stand there. Uh, and obviously not every single person is in there at the same time. Uh, But in the, you know, in the really big uh, moments, a lot of people are just stuck standing there, which I think is just really hilarious.
5: Imagine the State of the Union at the UK Parliament. And then, of course, there's some things that come along with, uh, you know, a rich British tradition that the Parliament still hasn't seemed to be uh, to shake off. Um, And one such little quirk is that they actually tie every law that they pass in green ribbon and send it on to the House of Lords. Very noble and official. Yeah. Um. Also, something which is fascinating and very fun to watch is the British House of Commons. Is not as doesn't have the, the same level of decorum that <laughs> we usually you know consider coming along with uh, something like a Parliament. They yell at each other a lot. Like, Uh, like all the time. A lot, a lot. And you should definitely look up videos because it's really
0: funny. Oh, my God. Literally just Google British House of Commons. You'll find the funniest videos, especially during uh, something called Question Time, where the Prime Minister just comes in and takes questions from members of Parliament. Uh, You will literally see people screaming at each other, you know, calling each other insults. But there are still certain rules to it. Uh, For example, the fact that you can't cuss. Uh, in the House of Commons, Uh, and from what I understand, it's kind of an interesting game for members of Parliament to play, uh, to see how far they can go and push the rules without really going overboard. Interesting. Uh, Another interesting thing, and the last thing we'll talk about really quickly, is the role of the Queen, Uh, because like Justin said, the Queen is the head of state,
5: technically. Her Majesty's government.
0: Uh, Yeah, Her Majesty's government, and then also the opposition party is Her Majesty's loyal opposition, uh, which (laughs) I think is hilarious. Um, And an interesting side note is that she still technically names the prime minister. Uh, And she does have these certain levels of uh, power and influence that uh, she doesn't ever actually really wield because she doesn't find them within uh, a democratic process. Uh, So that's really fascinating. Uh, So with that, that's the end of our uh, British Politics 101 and particularly our really weird stuff section. (laughs) Uh, We hope you guys enjoyed that just as much as we did.
2: Here's Sam Jeffers with more. Where does the Labour
5: Party stand with Brexit? So Corbyn sort of like half-heartedly campaigned to remain, and you know, what, where, I wonder like where does a Remain voter vote, and where does Labour play in
3: Yeah, well the assumption was that the Remain voter had nowhere to go, other than potentially to the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. So if you're a hardcore Remain voter, you get to vote for them. Now, you know, they're only consequential in, they're only going to win a really good election 20 seats and they're consequential therefore were in maybe 30 seats you know so um most people didn't have anywhere to go particularly once the labor party said that it you know brexit meant brexit and that they would go ahead with it um where does the Labour party sit so so i guess the labor party sits like somewhere like with a kind of less hard position than the tories in the sense that the tories uh basic line seems to be uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, which um, doesn't make a lot of sense, but effectively means that we will just walk away and we will abide by whatever rules and blah, 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 the world throws at us and we will just make the best of it, um, as opposed to paying 100 billion pounds in you know, exit fees and getting screwed in all these other ways that they will try and frame the, frame the negotiation as. And there are some uh, Tories on the right of the party who genuinely believe that like, is the best option. Like, rather than spending years tangled up in EU you know, negotiations and law, we should just leave and start kind of muddling our way through it. Um, and I think in a way that was one of the reasons why she wanted to hold the election in the first place, was to get more Tory MPs into parliament so she could free herself of the influence of those few who believed in a, no, a kind of non-negotiated end. So that's kind of where the Tories are. And so it it actually makes a big difference how many seats they get because it it does free her of of that kind of right-wing bit. Um, Labour Party basically is like, well, a deal has to be done, um, you know, but, you know, we will guarantee the free movement. You know, we will make make the offers, the initial offers that the EU seems to want. So free movement will be guaranteed. We'll try to retain a kind of zero-tariff... Uh, arrangement. So basically Labour Party is like, we'll have all the benefits of the EU, but without actually being in the EU and hoping to pull off some sort of answer like that. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense either because, you know, the answer to that is staying in the EU or the answer is leaving the EU, but like, it's not, it's not totally clear, but, um, you know, that's the, that's their sort of calculation is that they can kind of say to the electorate, no, 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 we're, we're leaving the EU, but you know, let's cherry pick the best bits of it and, and stick with it. you know, and it hasn't really been part of it, you know, incredibly, it hasn't really been part of the election campaign whatsoever. I mean, the you know, no, there's zero really focus on specific sort of Brexit, um, you know, and I think the Tory party's tried to get away with that by saying, we, we shouldn't reveal our hand, these are complicated negotiations, we don't want to show them what we, you know, what the stuff we've got. I think the Labour party's position on it is more like, we don't quite know what we want here. You know, a lot of our voters, don't want Brexit, um, and we will do whatever we can to try and sort of suggest that a soft Brexit is going to keep some of those voters with us and all the rest of it. So, yeah, no real debate on it, and it's the most important political issue for, in the UK for the next 50 years.
0: So, what exactly happened to UKIP after Brexit? What's the story? Like, like you know, like, like people like Nigel Farage kind of just disappeared after yeah, that. just, uh, like, just on American television. Yeah, yeah. Um,
3: <laughs> you're doing that yeah right unofficial yeah. Um, So, um, like where did the supporters go well this is, you know, there's you know there's really great voter flow has everyone seen those voter flow charts you know where like voters split all over the place I mean I guess when you have lots of parties you know and, and you've got 2015 over here and here's how everyone voted and you've got 2017 over here and here's how everyone's going to vote I think at the beginning of the campaign everyone assumed that all those UKIP voters were just going to go straight to the Tory because they'd voted UKIP for, for Brexit um, you know and how many people is this I think it was like 14% of voters or something so you know enough a lot of people and the the problem that people thought was at least that um, there were a lot of Brexit voters in Labour strong Labour seats and that suddenly this was going to make a lot of strong Labour seats marginal in a way that they'd never been before because all of those voters were suddenly going to flip over to the Tories now I think that's hard because in large parts of the country like Wales like certain parts of North England it's you know very difficult to make that switch. You know it's sort of family life, everything, identity, is all bound up in being part of like Labour heartlands and stuff. So actually, getting people to to walk in on the day and say right, I used to vote red but now I'm going to vote blue, swap that round in your heads, yeah. is um, is uh, is a thing that I can actually do. And I don't think um, I don't think so many are going to do that. Actually, I think I think they'll. Uh, I think, I think it may end up being sixty forty going blue, rather. But I'm guessing, really. But yeah, UKIP UKIP is dead because, you know Farage, uh, you know charismatic, straight talking, you know blah blah blah, all that sort of you know modern kind of right wing stuff. Um, uh, but his replacement is is neither of those things really. It's just useless, and so. Yeah, there's no real key and, you know, and the only issue they've got left is a kind of anti-immigration kind of platform and i don't think you, you know again once you get down to like absolutely single issue stuff a bit like green parties and stuff. you know you can get co-opted so quickly into into kind of mainstream platforms so you know both labor and the tories have immigration policies that that you know in any kind of debate head off um uh, that stuff and then UKIP's only opportunity then is to go r- straight racist, and that's not really cool, <laughs> you know, um, uh, anywhere. So, um, you know, and again, historically, where we've had like far-right parties, more like from National in France, like the, the, you know, our own national front here or the BNP or whatever, in the end, they get squeezed uh, to death, basically, um, by everyone saying this is just unacceptable. You know, and you know they they destroy themselves because they're all ultimately Nazis. And um, you know, YouTube videos emerge of them being Nazis, and then no one wants to vote for Nazis, actual Nazis, at least in the UK. How Um,
4: how polarized do you see social media being? Like, I mean, uh, not that you get that much of a sense through your project, I guess, but you are spending, you know, uh, significant time looking through Facebook and seeing that. So do you see the same level of polarization in
3: people in the UK? Um, well, I think, I think what you see here is that there's no... Uh, someone, like, someone like Buzzfeed or something has done some analysis into like, the most viral posts on the right and the left or whatever, and that everything on the left is extremely more viral than anything on the right. And I think, I think as yet in the UK, we don't have that kind of alt-righty, it's not so strong as, as it seems to be in the US. Um, you know, we have, we have a kind of lefty filter bubble thing but less of a right filter bubble thing um, so yeah, polarised but kind of more skewed I suppose than like genuinely split um, you know, on Twitter it's much you know, it's pretty, it's pretty lefty uh, in general, you know, when people we'll do the kind of like analysis of the tweets on election day you know, it's like Labour would win 80-20 and then Labour loses 60-40 you know, and it's like that sort of thing um, and again like most shared stuff particularly particularly because of this sort of Corbyn phenomenon actually you know he has uh, and it was true in the 2014 Scottish referendum as well like they have a really strong kind of grassroots digital thing going on where they're making lots of content and they have these conduits out through which these kind of viral posts go and um, and it seems to work pretty well so yeah like polarised in the sense that no one's posting much kind of that was a sensible centrist policy, you know. Uh, you know that was a practical solution to a difficult problem. You know those types of posts aren't so popular, um, but you know that's just the nature of the internet. I think.
4: I'm also curious why is that? Why is that skewed to the left? Not helping them win elections. Like why is? It, why did that not help them avoid Brexit? Why did that not yeah. help them beat out the conservatives? I mean, I think the, the assumption
3: is that. Um, Twitter, particularly, doesn't, you know, is, is used by a relatively smaller group of people, and it's not such a... You know, it's, in, it's interesting for the news junkies and people who want stuff, like, instantaneously, but again, it's not where you go to share the, you know, dog jumping into a swimming pool video. Um, and I think, um, you know, that's why the Tories, at least in the last election, claimed such a big role for Facebook, because they're like, everyone's on Facebook. I can reach people who I want to reach on Facebook, I can buy ads, and it, and it kind of works that way. Um, you know, again, I think, I think what you find is people sharing political stuff tends to go to people who are interested in political stuff. You know, I try and think through my friends. I know, you know, frankly, my friends, I know very few conservatives, if any, really, who are gonna passionately, like, post that stuff back into my feed. I know, like, I knew one person who would post Brexity stuff into my, you know, like, out of hundreds of people, uh, so, you know, that that sort of natural human self-selection of like people that think and look a bit like me, you know, kind of thing is the same on the internet as is in real life. Um, you know, why hasn't it helped? I think I think in the sense that it's created a half million member Labour Party and a, um, you know, a large group of people, a large group of like, like millions of people, although not necessarily enough to win an election, who will vote for Corbyn with enthusiasm, It has worked because it's changed people's view from a bit skeptical to, okay, I can probably vote Labour and this is fine uh, kind of thing. Um, You know, the question is, have those paid ads for the Tories which are, you know, know, Corbyn has made speeches in the past that say things like, I support Hezbollah and I don't want anti-terror laws and I don't want, you know, all sorts of stuff that in the current climate is weak. And those clips are, you know, pulled out of grainy VHS videos from the mid 90s and now appear on Facebook in millions of people's feeds, paid for by the Tories every single day. Um, you know, the question is, will that stuff work? And we'll find out on Thursday. Um, and that's, again, part of the project is, does Facebook advertising actually work? You know, do you carry through the things you see in, on here or on there to the polling booth and make the cross in the box because of what you've seen there? Like, and we can hopefully do some analysis of that. Are there places where we saw much lower volume of Facebook advertising did we see any kind of outcome? Can we do any kind of post-election um, survey on what people felt influenced their votes, match data, that sort of stuff. So I mean, it, we, we didn't, we've had too little time to design it as a really authoritative research project, but there's, there's a sort of hope that we can um, see did it make any difference or not.
5: Our next guest is Patrick Spencer, who is running for MP in West Ham and is a McCourt School graduate.
3: Uh, and I was wondering, so you're mentioning constituency sizes. So what is the kind of the variance in sizes? Well?
7: Huge like, variance. Um, uh, I'm not going to so 175,000 is quite big. If you go into the slightly sparser constituencies up in the north, in Scotland, you know, you're down to... I don't think there's a... There could be some constituencies with, with f- a five-digit um, pop, uh, population. Wow. So uh, this actually caused... Um, Problems with fairness in elections. No, no, not. I wouldn't go so far as to say there's a rotten borough problem, but of course, in some constituencies, it's a lot easier to get elected than it is in others because you've got to convince fewer people to vote for you. Uh, so there's a boundary review going on at the moment. Whatever that will result in, I don't know. Kind of depends how this re- this election ends up because of course, if you've got a party with a large majority, you can pass laws very effectively. Um, another difference between the UK and the US is, of course, if you win an election, you automatically have a majority in the in the parliament, and you only have to whip your own side more or less to pass laws. We don't have a situation in the US, although you have a Republican Senate, uh, sorry, Republican Congress and a president at the moment. But when I was there, obviously it was Democrat and Republican. Um, it makes passing laws in theory easier, and I would say actually in practice easier, but. You just have to you have to make sure you've got your own team on side uh, to pass it. So that's what will that's um, what's happening with boundary reviews and constituency sizes. It should be equalised.
4: I'm sort of curious um, if you knew West Ham was such you know a losing district for your party. Why you you know why you took the role?
7: Why um, uh, two reasons, um, if not a third. First of all, I think it's important I want to have a a career in politics and I think you've got to if one of the ways I think if you want to have a successful career you've got to take every opportunity as it comes Mm -hmm. and so for my career slightly selfishly I thought that was an important thing to do I got offered the opportunity Um, it's a lot of work but it's a lot of fun at the same time and if I do want to do this in the long term um, you can't go around saying well I don't want to do that Um, the idea hopefully is that in the future i'll get to run in my home seat which is in south london or um in a in a more winnable seat because that's again how it works you kind of you know move up uh the ladder but also there's a, I don't know, a bit of a, you know the idea of i care about the issues that we're fighting on i want to go and campaign on them i've got a very you know i've got a set of beliefs i've got a uh uh, uh, I, I think I've got some answers to the problems that this society faces and I, 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 I want to get out there and argue for them mm-hmm. um, and if you get offered the chance to go and campaign it's, it's, it's a bit like you know what I and this is a question that has come to me more is that why do people volunteer on campaigns in the first place there's very little uh, kind of incentive to do so you're not doing it for the money it's incredibly hard to work your way up the kind of you know ladder but you kind of feel like it's your duty and that it's actually your way of giving back and playing a playing a role in in the political process so that's why let's okay. put it bluntly It seems
4: uh-huh. like. sorry i was just going to follow up on that it seems like usually in the u.s if you sort of lose an election that's usually you know it for you for a while but i guess it's not the same in the uk it's not
7: really the same i mean you are judged from a party's point of view on how well you ran the campaign, how um, you behaved, your performance as an individual. Okay. But also if you went like, I mean, she's got a 27,000 majority. If I cut that down to 15 or even 20, uh, it's like ticking the box. You can, you know, you go into a tough part of the country and you convince people who've never voted conservative ever. Um, to maybe uh, give you their vote, um, then, you know, that's a good thing. Very, very different, the UK and US yeah. political yeah. system. For <laughs> sure. Very different.
2: I had, like, a logistical question. So you don't have to live in your yeah. constituency? No. Is that... Um, well, if downtime? you get elected, you should. <laughs>
7: yeah. yeah. If you get elected, you should. Okay. I got some abuse of that. Yeah. The house is not that... Decent. Have you read my Twitter page? No, I have I got my first round of social media trolling. Oh, oh nice. It's, it's, it's so trolling. exciting. <laughs> um, you, um, made it. you made I it. I know. Yeah, you did um, make it, yeah. Especially I if you have bots a, going after you, too.
4: No, no bots. No bots yet.
7: No, either. no. I got, a, I got a bit of, um, uh, you know, so kind of, I don't know, t- you had the word Tory scum. It's an 80s phrase oh, yeah. for, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> get a bit of that. Um, yeah, it's quite amusing.
0: I wonder if I can ask about this election compared to
5: ones in the past. I've heard some commentators say that it's a bit more than usual about the personalities of the party leaders uh, along maybe the lines of close to Blair, possibly. That, you know, like on the conservative bus, I think it's like the May way or something like that. It, you know, Theresa May is sort of all over it. Do you think that this election more than others is more about... Corbyn and Corbin
0: versus May or vice versa
7: perhaps um, I I don't have a huge frame of reference because I've never worked with so kind no. of closely with a campaign yeah but I Do can you feel tell you, that when you're... I can tell you this is all about um, uh, who you want to be as Prime Minister um, and having studied elections in the past it seems to be that that's generally the okay. the case in most sure. elections um, you go back to the eighties and nineties. Margaret Thatcher was big on making sure she was the focus. People voted for her. They didn't vote for the Conservative Party. Conservative Party has had, has had historically quite a uh, devalued brand. I mean, we're associated with lower public spending. We're, we're associated with you know tighter immigration controls. We're, we're associated with being kind of the party of the crusty white, kind of well off, um, not too dissimilar from the Republican Party. Uh, but. <laughs> You know, so there. But sorry, going back in this election, you're absolutely right. There has been a real emphasis on making sure that the uh, the the question for voters is who do you want to be prime minister, Uh, and the context of this election uh, is a reason for that. I mean, you've got a Labour Party who is in such disrepair because they've they've um, you know we we elect leaders of parties to serve an entire uh, election cycle, uh, so for a four or five year period. Um, so Jeremy Corbyn's been in, in his role now since June or July 2015. Um, and he has presided over um, a, 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 a more or less kind of collapse in the polls for the Labour Party. Um, they, there has been huge internal division, uh, on policy, they have had a massive jerk to the left. Um, they have seen an increase in membership, but that's largely related to people who had been banned from the party in the seventies and eighties because they were members of things like the campaign for nuclear disarmament, the the the, uh, the kind of communist party, and all these kind of things. Anyway, um, so for Theresa May going into this election, it was, and we were told as kind of candidates that this is not an election on who we are, this is very much an election on um, who you want to lead uh, Britain going forward, and also who you want to um, uh, manage the British uh, negotiation of Brexit, um, which is obviously the other big story going on at the moment.
2: Up next, we have Tom Tugendhat, a Conservative Member of Parliament who's been in the Parliament for a couple of years now. Here's what he has to say
1: to is commuter town. You know, people really care about trains. You know, trains can decide your life, and I really mean that. I mean, you know, if trains are an hour late, or an hour, you know, or, or are messed up for a couple of hours a day, that can really mean you spend, then instead of an hour and a half, two hours commuting, you spend four or five hours commuting. That can be, you know, that's quite a difference. Um, there are concerns about broadband and communications, not so much in Tunbridge, but in some of the outlying villages, because of course many people nowadays work from home. And then there are also sort of uh, the areas that you probably wouldn't get in a U.S. campaign trail in the same way, but they're concerned about healthcare, And what I mean by that is not the payment of it, but how it's delivered. So we've got three general practitioner practices in this town. We've got Tunbridge Medical Group, Hildenborough Medical Group, and Warders, and all three of them um, are pretty much loaded up with their full quota of people. So all three of them need to expand a bit. Only one of them... Has got space, and the other two need new buildings uh, and and a bit of expansion. So they're concerned about that. And then there's sort of a few of the more sort of esoteric things that uh, you know some people are concerned about, and not everybody. There's things like making sure the high street revives. When I first uh, was elected two years ago, the high street was mostly charity shops. This place here that we're in today was a complete dump. It had been a school. It had been it had been many many things, and it was a complete dump. And the transformation of the high street, which is in many ways, you know, the shop front for the town has made a big difference. It's really reflected in things like the house prices, because of course, most people's assets in the UK are tied up in house prices. There you go. Have I forgotten anything, Matt?
8: Hey, you've got most of Yeah, okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much is, I mean, three attacks in 10
0: weeks, how much is that driving the of
1: it, it is, of course, it's part of the national discussion. So police numbers is something that's come up in the last few weeks that hadn't come up in, for, for ages, and it's and it's come up because, of course, um, there is an illusion of a simple metric between the more police you have, the safer you are, and the reality, of course, is it's significantly more complex than that because, of course, um, good policing relies on intelligence. Therefore, you need people who can, you know, like GCHQ or your NSA who can break into. WhatsApp, communication, or whatever it happens to be, and work out what's going on. So it is a rather more complex question. And, of course, for us, you have two kinds... Well, you have seven, many, many different kinds of police officers, but you have armed police and unarmed police. Most of our police officers are unarmed. Nine out of ten are unarmed. One in ten is licensed to carry a weapon, but that does not mean that they're actually carrying a weapon. So quite a lot of the police you'll see wandering around. In fact, no, that's not true. A few of the police you'll see wandering around are actually licensed firearm officers, but they will not be carrying weapons. They will only be carrying weapons if they are doing a firearms role, uh, which means that they are getting ready to be reactive. But we police very much by consent, and actually one of the things that makes people unwilling to go for um, regularly armed police officers is when they see um, police actions in the United States, which are very actively broadcast here, of course. And that puts people off having uh, armed officers on the street.
4: What is it like to represent three different districts and how do you go about one district? One district. Oh, towns.
1: Three towns. Well I re- represent three towns, 30 odd villages well, and several...
4: Uh, at different points in your career I mean you've represented three different places, right? You said?
1: No, I've only ever represented here. Oh, okay. Sorry, there are three predominant towns. So Tunbridge is a town of about 30 35000 people. Mm-hmm. Sorry, let me rephrase that. It's a town of 35,000 electors, about 40,000 people, 45,000 people. Uh, Edenbridge is a town of about uh, six, seven thousand electors, about eight to nine thousand people, and West Morning is a town of about five thousand electors, about seven, eight thousand people.
4: And how do you go about finding the issues that they care about? You meet them. Okay.
1: The most essential tool in politics is a decent pair of shoes, because you will spend most of your time walking and meeting people. That's what you do. Yes, sir.
3: So we've had the uh, privilege of meeting with. Just- Different types of people and we met actually with a BBC reporter, uh, Mark Darcy, who said yeah, yeah. that he's observed a change in the relationship between MPs and their constituents, that they're more responsive, or they seem to be more responsive to their constituents.
1: Well I think that's true. I mean when you look at Winston Churchill represented four constituencies, one uh Dundee, one in uh, London one just outside London, one in Essex. I mean, you know, in those days it was very much a platform for you to play on the national stage. These days, um, people expect their representatives to... Uh, what's that word? Oh, yeah, represent. You know. <laughs> so there is a much more active uh, involvement. In fact, one of the things that uh, Matt does for me when it's not election time is make sure that I'm in touch with the issues, because, of course, I've got to spend four or five days a week in Westminster in Parliament. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm employed to do. That's why I'm sent to Parliament, is to have a voice on the national stage in our... In our, in our uh, in our parliament, but but there is a huge number of things that come up locally. So keeping in touch with councillors, of whom there's, crikey, in both districts is about 50 or 60, and then there's a couple, 64, and then there's uh, another eight or nine county councillors. And then there's other folk like, you know, police chiefs, vicars, um, religious leaders of various other description, um, town teams, um, parish councils, you know, all these different groups. Um, keeping in touch with them is is very very much part of the job now. In a way that I mean Winston Churchill wouldn't have done. In fact, the last I believe I'm right in saying the last member of Parliament to truly, really, genuinely not live in her constituency was Gwyneth Dunwoody, who was the uh, member of Parliament up in Cheshire somewhere, Crewe, that's right. And she um, she had been elected in the 60s, 50s or 60s, and she left Parliament. I think she died actually, uh, and she was replaced by a guy. Uh, called Edward Timpson, who's now the MP for Crew, and she used to take an advert out in the local paper, as people did in those days, and it said the me- member will be visiting the constituency on the 3rd of July, or whatever it was. If you wish to meet them, they will be at this hotel. And she would go for two days, stay at her hotel in, in the constituency, and then go back to Westminster. That was it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that those days are gone, quite rightly. Yes, sir.
2: Um, so I uh, believe the... Southwest, um voted to um, leave in the resident vote. On this, as a, a remainder, on on, on the, are those kind of conflicting um, sentiments um, playing out at all in your campaigning and in your interactions with like locals? So,
1: so um, for some, they are. I mean, they. I would. Uh, I would say they're not for me. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things about soldiering is you learn to give your advice clearly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. strongly and forcefully, and then when the orders come down you know, turn to the right, gain height, march off. Yep. And that's um, and that's really what we got, you know, I and mean, that's how referendums work. Um, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of them, but some questions are bigger than the ability of parliaments to decide because they're fundamentally about the nature of democracy and not just about the laws that we apply, and this one was one of those. We got an answer, it wasn't the answer I campaigned for, but guess what, doesn't matter. I got the same vote as everybody else, it was the one time in the past two years when I wasn't representing anyone else, I was just representing myself. Um, The decision was made, we're moving on, and now my job is to get the best deal that I can Mm -hmm. for my community, obviously, but also for the country. And um, and, as far as I'm concerned, that means having a close, uh, what the Prime Minister is calling it, a deep and strategic partnership, I believe is the Prime Minister's line, and as we all know, the Prime Minister is always right. (laughs) And so um, I'm looking for a deep and strategic partnership, too, with our European Friends, and that means working with uh, members of other parliaments in in the European Union and trying to make sure that we have a proper relationship that endures beyond what is frankly going to be a little bit of a rocky road in the next couple of years.
0: So, why do you think that your party's uh, ideas regarding Brexit are better than some of the other options that are out there, like some of the softer?
1: Options. Well, I, you see, I don't accept that there are soft or hard options, I, 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 I'm afraid. If you, if you accept um, that one of the fundamental things of the European Union is the rulemaking body that creates a single market. You know because it standardizes whatever it is, you know the sound of lawnmower engines or the you know the strength of car engine or whatever it happens to be I mean all these sort of things that have to be standardized I know mean, it sounds ridiculous, but they have to be standardized if you want to have a single market. I mean you guys have a single market in the United States, which means that if I buy a car in uh, Delaware, I can drive it in New York and you don 't get the policeman in new york saying i 'm sorry, the color of your headlights is wrong, therefore this car is illegal, therefore you must now go out and buy a new york car you know but that 's the sort of thing that was happening uh, in the European Union, which is why the UK in particular pushed hard for the uh, single market. In fact, it was the UK who pushed hard for the standardisation of uh, lawnmower engine noises because the Germans have very strict laws on what you can do on a Sunday and how loud things can be on a Sunday. And so they were banning UK lawnmowers on the grounds they were too loud. The UK government went to the European Court of Justice arguing that this was an infringement on free trade, which... Uh, the European Court of Justice upheld, and that's why we have standard lawnmower engine noises. But you know, these, the reason for these things is not because somebody thought it would be a good idea to standardise lawnmower engine noises, but because actually they were infringements on free trade. So, given that we're now going to leave that free trade making body, we're not going to have commissioners, we're not going to have members of the European Parliament, and we won't accept the jurisdiction of a court to which we do not send judges, we've got to leave the single market. I mean, you can't be bound by rules that you've had absolutely no say in making. I mean, it's nuts. And you can't be in the customs union, because the customs union gives uh, specific access to everything coming from the European Union and everything coming from the UK to have free exchange, but not anything outside it, which means that anybody coming from, say, under the new Canadian deal, could bring their goods into the European Union, sell it free, free of tariffs or, or, or restrictions to the UK, but the UK could not sell things free of tariffs or restrictions back to Canada. So, effectively, it would be a one-way free trade. So, you know, people talk about hard and soft. The simple reality is you cannot be bound by rules that you have no say in making. That is fundamentally undemocratic, um, as I believe some of your folks said in 1776. And, um, And you cannot be bound by customs deals, which are only one way. So the reality is, you know, people talk about hard and soft Brexit. There really is only Brexit, and now there's how we build up from it. And I'm afraid other people are spinning... Uh well, the spinning yawns.
2: <laughs> yes, sir.
1: Thanks for tuning in to part one of our
5: Fly Across the Pond podcast. Uh so at this point you will probably just be learning about the results of the election, which is exciting. So hopefully this podcast helps you learn more about what it means to work in politics, be a politician, uh, and live in the political world over there in Britain.
0: Yeah, I think uh, one of the themes we've really learned from this episode is that politics is politics no matter what country you're in. Uh, You know, I I think we figured out that, you know, a lot of running themes happen uh, between Britain and the United States. And uh, despite having very different political systems and very different elections, uh, a lot of people are running for the same reasons.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So check back in, in a couple of days, we will have uh, another podcast, our part two from uh, our Hoys in UK. They will have reflections on the results implications for what that means and we will find out if teresa may has her brexit coalition or not
0: hyped see you guys Super in hyped. a couple of days were, were wizards allowed to vote like in muggle world like voting like, I know they had their own government and stuff, but, like, were they just, like, could they go to the ballot box and okay? stuff? Do you think Cornelius Budge was elected democratically? No. There's, like, zero chance. He, like, seized power. That's, but, like, his whole thing. But, like, if wizards aren't allowed to vote in, like, other elections, is that, like, voter suppression? Like, they still have to, like, play, pay taxes and stuff, right?
5: I hope we get a Hermione m- movie in a couple <laughs> of years of how Hermione's standing up for wizard rights Dude, and their ability to vote.
2: What if the wizards hack the voting booths? What if their technology Right? They How could do you know do that if it's true?
7: Yeah. Where's, where's the Kobe memo on that one? <laughs>